warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia Podcast, a very British podcast about very British films with the occasional hint of professionalism. Hi, Scott here. With me this week is Stephen. Good morning, sir. Hello, mate. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. We talk about this every every time we meet up, but this is a bit bizarre. We're sort of two weeks before Christmas 2018, and we were just saying we've, we've got so many episodes in advance. Listener might not be hearing this until we think probably about March. And yeah, we're going to have to be careful because um, it, it's almost like on us to record an Easter episode. Which we Christmas planned. Time. Yeah. <laughs> we have planned what we're going to do for Easter, but we'll, we'll obviously announce that nearer the time. It's just a bit bizarre, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm a bit wary of mentioning anything that might be topical. I mean, by the time this goes out, you know, Brexit could have gone to hell in a handcart by the time this comes out in March because it's about the same sort of time. Who knows? Who knows what's on the horizon? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the way that the politics is going, particularly um, after I think anybody can guess what's going to happen tomorrow, never mind in three months' time. So um, better we stay away from, from that area entirely. Anything, anything. Um, but at least we know what's going on with the films of the past. This is probably why we've selected to do this, because we've said this before as well, that there's a thousand movie podcasts out there that review current releases. Yes. And it's all well and good if you've seen them, but you know, a lot of them will have spoilers and things in it. I've got no qualms about spoiling a 60, 70 year old movie. No, if you've not seen it by now, then obviously there there are certain films where there might be a twist or Mm. or something that you don't want to spoil because it it will hamper enjoyment. But talking about the actual storyline and, and things in general, there's no problem with doing that because the you know it's usually covered in the synopsis of it anyway, and it's yeah. there's a general awareness of what the film is yeah. already. So oh. yeah, I think they're fine to not have to give you know warnings about spoilers yeah. for, for, for a sixty-year-old film. Yeah. Exactly, but it, if like you say, if there is anything that we think if you know for the anybody that hasn't seen a particular movie, and it's like oh, stop listening to the podcast now. Go and watch the film and then come back because, as you say, certain films warrant a little bit of a pre-warning. This film that we're going to review tonight, I can pretty much say there's no major plot twists in. Yeah, I would say that it's you know it's it's kind of up there up front what what happens and um, no surprises. No really. surprises. What's the film? It's the Admirable Crichton from 1957, directed by Lewis Gilbert. We'll be back with it just after this. (laughs) 
Today's review is of a movie from 1957. Directed by Lewis Gilbert and starring Kenneth Moore, The Admirable Crichton was based on a play written in 1902 by J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan. The film tells the story of an upper-class English family headed by Lord Loam and is set near the turn of the century. Loam has modern ideas about his household and believes in treating his servants as equals. Well, some of the time. His butler Crichton, played here by Kenneth Moore, still believes that members of the serving class should know their place and quite frankly be happy there. Following a scandal where one of the Loam daughters is arrested for supporting the suffragettes, the family decides to get away from the embarrassment by boarding the family yacht and sailing away for a while until the fuss is over. But when the Lone family are shipwrecked on an uninhabited desert island along with Crichton and the ladies' maid Tweeny, the class system is suddenly put to the test. Kenneth Moore playing the role of Crichton is perfectly cast here. Despite first choice being David Niven, he does a superb job throughout the movie. Moore does here what he does best, and that is to ooze charm. Director Lewis Gilbert was well aware that Kenneth Moore had his limitations, but was extremely fond of him as an actor. Gilbert will recall many years later, what he could do, he did very well. His strengths were his ability to portray charm. Basically, he was the officer returning from the war, and he was superb in that kind of role. The minute that kind of role went out of existence, he began to go down as a box office star. The movie begins with the Earl of Loam, played by the ever-reliable Cecil Parker, expressing his views on human equality by insisting that his servants have tea with him and his family in the grand family home. It's a disagreeable experience for everyone concerned, especially for the butler Crichton and Loam's daughters, along with various other family members and husbands-to-be, etc., who don't share his lordship's liberal views. The major theme of the movie is social class, and how it's determined in and out of English society. Social class and the various ways it's maintained, as well as its effects on people, is a very important factor to the story. When the group of aristocrats and their servants are marooned on the island, none of the pampered people know how to care for themselves. And so, it's down to Crichton to ensure their survival by starting a fire, providing shelter and finding food. The second half of the movie sees the entire social order turned on its head. Crichton, now known as the Governor, is well and truly in charge, and his former masters are now his servants. But everyone is much happier with this arrangement. Things are working out well apart from when it comes down to romance. Everyone's waiting to see if Crichton will fall for the oldest daughter Catherine, or his former housemaid Tweeney. There are a few surprises throughout the story, and all the cast here are faultless. Moore is the perfect butler. Cecil Parker, the perfect choice for Democratic Liberal Lord Loam. Ably supported by Gerald Harper, Jack Watling and Sally Ann Howes, and of course the marvellous Martita Hunt as Lady Brocklehurst. The movie is just what this podcast is all about. It's a very British movie. The sort of movie only we Brits could make, and it proved to be incredibly popular at the time. At the British box office in 1957, it was the third most popular film after High Society and Doctor at Large. Incidentally, also featuring Kenneth Moore. A perfect, gentle, inoffensive comedy. Join us as we review The Admirable Crichton.
Well, where are the blazes of the other boats? I fear we drifted apart during the night, my lord. If indeed we are not the sole survivors. Well, it's a lovely afternoon anyway. Crichton, who is this person? Her name is Eliza, my lady. And what is her position in the household? On the twinny, your ladyship. The what? A between maid, my lady. That is to say, she is not, strictly speaking at the moment, anything. Are we to understand you two are keeping company? Oh, my lady, a butler don't keep company. Indeed. Let us say, I have cast a favourable eye upon her. Land! Eh, what? Look! If you please, Mr. Johnson. Is it land, Crichton? Undoubtedly, my lord. Well, how long before we reach it? We should be ashore before long. Ashore? But we can't go ashore like this. How can we possibly meet the governor in our condition? My hair's a sight. Well, what are we to wear? Are we to stay in government house without a maid between us? If I might suggest, my lady, as a temporary expedient. What? Oh, Mr. Cardinal, couldn't... Her manners, as you may have observed, are deplorable. But she has a homely appearance and a heart of gold. Possibly. But I'm afraid she will not do. Quite impossible. Quite. The Admiral Crichton released in 1957, also known as Paradise Lagoon, which we believe may be the American title, directed by Lewis Gilbert, which is his second appearance after Educating Rita here on the Real Britannia podcast, starring Kenneth Moore, Diane Calento, Cecil Parker. We've got Sally Ann House, Martita Hunt, Jack Watling and Peter Graves and Gerald Harper. 1905, Lord Henry Loam, his family and his servants are shipwrecked on a deserted island where the survival of the fittest renders the rigid class system irrelevant. So yes, my choice. It's one that was on my list for us to cover at some point. Yes. And it kind of wouldn't get out of the forefront of my mind. It kept drifting back there when we were doing 39 Steps. Yeah. Because, of course, um, Kenneth Moore doing a celebrated version of oh, cool. 39 Steps. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of came up that why not do it now as with there being a, a, a vague connection there. Fine. So, yeah. it obviously, part of my brain wouldn't let it go. But there's also, as it turns out, um, you pointed out that there's a, a link to um, Educating Rita. Yeah. I think so. For, um, we've actually managed to tie a few bits there together. But yes, that was why it was. it's a film that I have seen a number of times. Uh, you have obviously seen a number of times yes. as well, yep. which is why your reaction on the last <laughs> episode was delighted at being able to, um, to cover this. It had been on uh, my list of things to watch quite recently. It was... Whether we got to it in the podcast or not, I was I was going to watch it. And, and funny enough, I watched Genevieve a couple of weeks ago with Kenneth Moore, right. which got me, like you say, in the back of your brain, something always triggers things. And, and obviously talking about Lewis Gilbert and educating Rita, it's like, oh, I must get round to watching Admirable Crichton and bloody hell, you'd make me watch it, which is fantastic. It obviously was naturally its time, um, even though it was on the list along with probably about a hundred other films, um, <laughs> yeah. it's time had come. So here it is, and obviously it's it's pushing certain people a step closer towards um, being in the Village Hall of Fame. Lewis Gilbert's uh, second appearance, Kenneth Moore's yeah. second appearance after Night to Remember. I think they're yeah. the only ones I think they have had two appearances so far. So we're, we're getting there, and I know you've had... I know you've had Sean Connery on before, but this is Mrs Sean Connery. Mrs Sean um, Connery, um... Mother to Jason, I believe. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yes, we're getting we're we're getting a few more candidates that are closer that are on the cusp. So, which is is nice to wait for the future because I'm sure 
I'm sure both of those will at some point, probably in the new year or, or very soon. Very soon. Um, very soon after. More, It'd be yeah. a year to 18 months before one of those is probably picked up again. I um, think Considering so. the calibre of films that they're in. I think so. I mean, this movie, did you see it a long time ago? Because I saw it as a very young teenager or even prior to that i think late 70s i may have seen this on tv because it was one of those ones again sunday matinee it was one of those stalwarts of the of the tv schedules when did you first see it i was i think somewhere around the age of eight and nine yeah yeah and as you say it was just on on television on a a a rainy bank holiday or sunday afternoon and it's it's an easy family watch so yeah. it was it was on and put on quite often i'd probably assume um and i've i've seen it once or twice since in all those years that have passed in between probably about the uh, same for me yeah, yeah yeah two or three times the thing that impressed me most this time round we're talking 1957 we're talking british movie they actually go on location it's not Canberra Sands. They actually go to Bermuda to film the desert island scenes on this. And it makes a great deal of difference, I think, having something that authentic. Yeah. There were some blue screen bits, um, yeah. which, you know, you could tell. But for the time, that was high tech. It was actually filmed on location. And as you say, it wasn't wasn't Skegness <laughs> or Canberra Sands, so, which, you know, would have made the difference. Because I think the, you could tell the actors were warm rather than yeah. actually trying but, to shake off a blue tint. But, um, yeah, they were getting skin. suntans. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Camber Sands, I think, famously is where Carry On Follow That Camel or one of those Carry On movies set in the desert was actually filmed, and they said it was freezing. They, they filmed it in October. It was horrible. I like this film. I'm, I'm going to say it right from the outset, mate. I do like this film. I love Kenneth Moore. The more, the more I see of Kenneth Moore, the more I admire his work. The guy... We've said this previously, you know, we thought when we started this podcast, the people that would come into focus would be your John Mills or your David Leans or these massive great names. Kenneth Moore is in an amazing amount of famous movies or notable movies from the 50s and the 40s here. And then he goes right on into, you know, when he's, he's an old man, you know, appearing in Battle of Britain and things like that. I I like him. I mean, what's your thoughts on Kenneth Moore? Yeah, I mean, I, he's as you say, he's sprinkled throughout a great many films that are just well respected. His his profile mm. is lesser than than these big stars that have got the name recognition, but people will actually go, "Oh yeah, I know who that is." When yeah. you particularly show him a picture or, or such like, so. That's useful. I mean, there's, as a, that's why, I, you know, it won't be long before he enters into the Village Hall of Fame because he's been in so many films that we will want to cover. Yep. He's, and he's, you know, he's got, maybe not um, in the sense of, of matinee idol, but he's, you know, he's a good enough looking bloke and a quality enough actor that he can play a variety of roles uh, in various films and just do the job well. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is a comedy through and through, but he plays a straight comedic role, if if that's the way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. But you look back at things like Reach for the Sky, or as we did in Night to Remember, this guy can do serious drama as well, you know, 39 Steps, which we will get to his version eventually, as you say. Yeah. Um, 
And I think he worked with Lewis Gilbert a couple of times. So Lewis Gilbert obviously spotted a few things here. But the whole cast, I mean, let, let's go right to the beginning. It's, it's based on a play by Jay and Barry. Yes, it is, yeah, which um, had a, you know incredibly successful run, apparently, at the time, Broadway and over here, and was uh, one of, you know, an early um, adopted play into actually being put on film, because I believe it was somewhere around 1907, it was a, a silent movie right. film, which had a certain amount of success as well, but obviously, with it being silent, it, it doesn't really compare um, yeah, a little bit difficult. Easily, easily with this, <laughs> but it's not something that's been written around about the time in which it was made. It definitely had that more contemporary referencing at the time at which it was actually written, yeah. which was, you know, turn of the century. Yeah. So, which does put a different light on it, I think, if you're, if you're aware of that, rather than thinking it, this is a film from the 50s that is just looking back and, and imagining what it was like 50 yeah. years before. It's it's very upstairs downstairs in its in its approach because upstairs downstairs was famously you know re- um, set the turn of the century and it also involved an MP if I remember rightly the head of the house was an MP and obviously focused on the goings on upstairs and then the, uh, and, the and then the servants downstairs but what this film very cleverly does is it brings them together. But not in a way that you're expecting, because you're expecting some sort of clash, a clash of cultures, a clash of class. But what we see is that the the servants react badly to the whole integrating with the upper class, and then the upper class react just equally as badly to, as having to integrate with the servants. And I'm, I'm talking about the bit right at the beginning here, where the Lord himself instigates yeah. a, a tea party where all his servants are brought in to meet his family. And being served tea by the, um, the, the upper-class masters and, and, um, and mistresses. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I didn't recall how much of the story actually dwelled on the, the life in England before the catalyst for them going to the foreign seas. I mean, it doesn't take too long to get to that part, but mm. I'd, I'd forgotten how much it actually showed, which you know, useful because I think it gives context and actually puts the, the rest of it in perspective. But absolutely, the, the class part of it, it isn't a clash of class, like you said. Mm. It's and, and interestingly, that the the main characters are the are, are stereotypes of the class system. You know, the, the bumbling lord with good intentions, yes. and and there's the the painfully Cockney working class maid. <laughs> um, actually, I think Diane Calento is actually Australian. Yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then the butler, like you say, who. Um, isn't even probably on the middle rung of the class ladder. He's actually below that. But uh, his reaction to the idea of, of the levelling of the classes, that's one of the most in, in sort of things that stood out for me on, on this, that it's, he's the most wedded to the, the class system out of everybody in this film. Mm. And it's it's the, what I, I call working class Tory sort of idea, but it's it's the... The, the idea that you, you respect people further up the chain because it means that there's still somebody below you you look, can look down upon. And I think he, he, um, I think he, he actually says this to, to one of the, the ladies, um, that if he was equal to the Lord, then the footman would be equal to him and, and that yes. just wouldn't do. Yes. And, and, you know, that one rung down from him um, 
been equal to him compared to those that are several rungs above him. It's just completely unacceptable to him. And, and it's, it's the entrenchment of the class system, obviously, mm. that, that um, at the time must have been... That that was quite subtly done and put in there, and, and the rest of it was more a sort of a, a laugh about changing the, of the classes and the reversals and stuff. But that was thrown in there, and it's easily missed. But that's probably for me the most interesting comment on class about in this whole film. <laughs> really, yeah. yeah. I mean, you you picked up on it, I picked up on it, but I, I don't think I ever picked up on it previously. That's what I mean. Looking at it through adult eyes, we've always said that we we reassess movies when we go back to them 10 15 20 years later um, and most of the movies that we review here on real britannia we saw as kids we we saw yes. them pre-teenage a lot of them and it's interesting to go back because i've always said that anything i think no it was you that actually said this many years ago Stephen. i think you said any film that you saw before the age of 16 in your mind you haven't actually seen you have to watch them again to reassess them properly, I'm sure it was you. Oh, it was a, it was a theory that me and me and Smokey came up with mm. on um, HOM that mm. um, you, you you didn't have a mature enough mind yeah. to be able to appreciate things, and you needed to, in order to actually give a proper critical perspective on things, you needed to watch them not only when you were older, but also when you'd had a, a better understanding of what makes a good film, really, and the nuances in there and it's borne out with a number of films all of you've watched over the last few years been podcasting and mm. and 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 we had as well that even films that we may have seen in early adulthood when you, we weren't mature enough in our appreciation revisiting them sometimes can completely overturn now obviously there's some things that were just absolute shit when you were a kid and there's no there's no reason it's going to be any different <laughs> True, but there's yeah. but there's so, there are a great number of things that we have found over the years mm. you and me and, and mm. others that we know that are, are reappraised and sometimes bumped down and, and quite often bumped up yeah yeah with this one i think is a case of bumping up my my thoughts on it because there was a lot to this as we say that were hidden between the lines what what i saw as a kid was just this comedy of manners with an amusing role reversal plot it's actually quite deep as well. You know, there's a lot in here. I mean, there's the... Even prior to going to the island, as you say, there's a lot of comments between the staff. That one you just pointed out about the footman is an excellent example. But there's there's a part where he sacks the kitchen boy. For calling him by his, his, his surname, not even his first name, yeah. calling him by his surname, which, you know... Uh, absolutely yeah he says and when you know you ever get to the level of so-and-so you may be entitled to call me mr was it mr Crichton? i think mr. he said Crichton, yeah. yeah and he said there's a train leaving at twelve thirty. be on it <laughs> off he goes yeah i mean i yeah when i originally watched it it was this genteel comedy um that just was a you know a bit silly um in in a way these people you know the the stiff upper lip um and, and stiff neck english people end yeah. up on a desert island also there was probably as a child there was a, an interest in seeing the was it best described as um flintstone-esque contraptions that they come up with to I bring thought the modernity to, uh, <laughs> to the desert island you know the 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 shower system and the record player and and these kind of things where they they had contraptions built out of um wooden <laughs> 
I don't know where they got all the string from. Yeah, but, um, seashells. But yeah, they, and, yeah. yeah and, and this is it. This is the sort of um, the fantasy part of it, bringing it in in order to get the story through. And the child, you know, seeing that, that they were, you know, pulling a lever to have some water come as a shower. Yeah. And, and as I say, like the Flintstones, it was that was probably part of it as a child. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was an easy watch. It wasn't complicated to watch in, on its surface level, but absolutely there are things deeper in this which are easily missed as a child yeah i mean we're saying now particularly with with our awareness of of class well the thing that it jolted me actually i mean i was chuckling over all of those little bits you know the creativeness of of you know making razors out of seashells and their clothes were all adapted and you know there was grass skirts but you know they were using their existing clothing over the years the actual bit that jolted for me was it was probably at the point you could tell where the intermission would have been in the play uh, originally and they're unveiling a statue commemorating the fact that they've been lost at sea for two years and then we go back to the island and suddenly you see governor's house and this whole little village that they've built and it's it's, it's gone from you know barely surviving around a campfire to this whole two years later and the role of Crichton has completely reversed from servant to governor of the island and they're calling him gov you know and they're waiting on him hand and foot and i thought i don't remember it being that sudden i I always remembered it as um a gradual process i think i remember the first half of the movie up to that point better than i remember the second but it was interesting it was just incredible the way that the whole thing completely reversed itself to such a degree, and it, it, it took me out of it for a little bit. I'm thinking it, it was sudden. Yes, yeah. I I um I remembered it being more of a there'd been more of a to and fro, yeah, a bit more of conflict, a bit more of a struggle, yes, for for dominance rather than it being such a quick um, acceptance almost, quick wasn't sur- yeah. A quick surrender, yeah, to um, the obviousness that. Crichton as as a character, even in England, was shown to be more capable and intelligent and wise than the lords and ladies um, that he served. But on the island, that comes directly to the fore, even by uh, him allowing them to make the mistakes against his better judgment to prove his point, really. And it very quickly does. It's just a, a, a role reversal quite easily. But the interesting thing was that when they first arrive on the island, mm-hmm. the idea of the equality that was being pushed by the lord it's quickly abandoned in immediately actually being, you know <laughs> but then it always was even the the equality when they were back in england it was like you know you will you will come and enjoy this tea party whether you like it or not so yeah like, there was still that control wasn't yeah. there so and he you know he becomes more entrenched as sort of the upper class as the the boss as the leader when they first reached the island but then as as we said, it it very quickly overturns voluntarily where they surrender to to actually recognising that Crichton is the more capable. And it's as you said, once they've got past the year point when there's that flip over, yeah, which which isn't shown. It's just um, a, a sort of almost almost it's you know only missing the caption on screen saying one year later. Which is what the what the statue unveiling serves. Mm. We then have that it's all progressed and everybody's quite happy in their new new class system. Oh yeah, yeah, and in fact seem to be happier than they were when they were at home. Do you know what has just suddenly hit me? You you just said something. Crichton, 
it's Crichton and Red Dwarf. Yeah. Is yeah, that where it comes from? Yeah. I didn't is, yeah. didn't even realise that. It's just yeah. you saying that word and I've got I've got Red Dwarf yeah. Crichton in my head all of a sudden. Yeah. I'm thinking, oh my but god, yeah. it all makes sense. For those, for those that don't know what we're talking about, there's a there's a British um sci fi sitcom and um early in it's gone to about twelve different series now. But um mm. in the I think it was the third series. They introduced a character, which was a, a, a ship that they found that had been shipwrecked. Yeah. And on it, there was a, a, a butler who was still tending to the dead bodies of, exactly, of, his, yeah. of his masters and mistresses. And his he was called Crichton, named after the, the character in this film. He then became, wow. back in a subsequent series, to be a regular. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that this character in 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 the film, mm-hmm. who um, is the one that's most entrenched in the class system yes and in actually fact um feels in the end feels the need to go back to the, the, the class system yeah the servitude he, yeah yeah he's the one that out of all of them is is most beholden to the system he's the one that won't let it go and, and actually values it most interestingly in the sitcom um red dwarf yeah um the, it's a constant battle in that and, and a point of comedy about trying to undo the programming of, of, def- <laughs> of deference to to the masters yeah. um, that the the robot Crichton has towards the, um, the the human beings that he serves. So the the parallel is is there absolutely between not just the name but also that trying to trying to overcome the deeply entrenched or programmed deference to the class system. There you go. I mean, I've been aware of this film for forty years plus. Watched Red Dwarf religiously when it came out and it's one of those what frank skinner describes of an idiotic eureka moment i've just linked the two of these together <laughs> wow uh, i'd have mentioned that earlier in the uh, recording if i'd realized uh, that yeah yeah and it hadn't dawned on you no, uh, no yeah it's one that's easy to miss but mm. as you say once it's one of those oh of course yeah now kicking myself yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. incredible it's like some of these great ideas that suddenly somebody comes out with and you think Fucking hell, why has nobody thought about a wind-up radio before? Yeah, <laughs> True, um, and yeah. this kind of thing. So, yeah, but that's the yeah that's the, the modern reference point that um, that has been drawn um, with things that culturally we're already fans of. Yeah. But um, on the island, yeah, he's, he's still got that, the class system, although, you know, he's, he's in a different position on it. He still can't really let go of where he was, and that's why it takes him such a long time to actually do something about um, the whole love interest situation yes. um, on the island that that takes obviously it's been over a year before anything is done about that and, he, and they're all waiting upon him to actually make his choice as the governor mm. um, he gets his pick of, of, <laughs> of, of the girls and and obviously uh, he makes his choice but it's very very stereotypical um, just as an aside it's very st- stereotypical uh, 50s Mouths closed, pushing your faces together, but not actually kissing. Um, <laughs> in in the in the actual um, final realization, and them actually having a kiss. It's just one of those. Really, is that what you call a kiss? Because that's then not, again, no, they, no they, feeling in it. They must have been pushing the boundaries a little bit with Kenneth Moore being bare chested for a lot of the film, and Sally Ann Howells running about in something resembling something that Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, would have been wearing. You know, you must actually. This is this is still only nineteen fifty seven. It's not quite the permissive sixties yet, but you know they're getting there. They're slowly getting there. Interestingly, Sally Ann Howells who plays Lady Mary, the the love interest for 
for Kenneth Moore. Did you recognise her? Yes. 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 Yeah. Face. Face is just one of those that is one that you've seen in a great number of things mm-hmm. um, over the years. See, you've seen that face. Um, well, most famously, get, get, get more mature and, yeah. and develop a few extra lines. You know, gradually um, over the years, um, still a you know a striking woman in, oh. into her older age. She's still alive um, now. She's eighty-eight years yeah. old. She lives in Florida, I believe. Most famously, she was truly scrumptious in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is what most people will know her for. And I'm going to make a suggestion here. I know it's a bit early in the year, but for for Halloween this year, there's a great British movie from about 1945. I bet you've seen it. It's the, the one that's got the four separate stories, features Michael Redgrave as the ventriloquist, Dead of Night. Oh, yes. She appears in one of the earlier uh, segments to the movie, not the Michael Redgrave one. Being 1945, I think she's only about 12 years old. She was like a child actress, and she went acting on for like 30, 40 years. But I'm thinking Dead of Night might be a great Halloween episode, which would then give us another chance to see another Sally Sally Ann Howes movie. The rest of the cast, there's a couple of famous faces. Did you recognise Gerald Harper? I didn't at, no. at the time. No, looking up um, subsequently, yes, I, you know, I can see him. But yeah, at the time, at the time, I didn't um, didn't recognise him. No, he was more. I think there was a couple of TV series he did in the seventies. Oh, not. I was going to say Hannay, but that was the one that Robert Powell did, wasn't it? We were talking about last time. Um, Hadley, I think it was called Hadley. There was this, you know, this historical thing that he used to do on on ITV in the late seventies. Um, we've got who else is there? Let's have a look. Well, there's Cecil Parker for a start off. Lady Killer's fame, yeah, m- yeah, that's from where so I'm... many things mm. as well. He's one that I imagine will be dropping into the Village Hall of Fame Definitely. before very long because he's he's been in so many things, so many roles for for decades. He yeah. was a stalwart um, of British cinema and television. Definitely, Martita Hunt, who who plays Lady Brocklehurst now. If ever you wanted to cast the highest of high-class, upper-class ladies, Martita Hunt would be the first one you'd go to. Yeah, she's the stereotypical dowager. Yes. Um, the, the the grand matriarch of a posh family that's looking down upon is she... everything else that's been done. Yeah, is she of handbag fame? Is that her? I'm sure she was the importance I... of being earnest. I'm sure I'm, that was her. But I don't know if, I I don't know what, if it mm. was her, but she, I imagine she probably played that but part I bet she has. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. but I'll tell you what I do remember her from. I'm pretty sure she was Miss Havisham in David Lean's Great Expectations. I'm sure that was her as well. Interesting. We've got a Doctor Who connection. Listeners might not be aware of our love for Doctor Who, because we don't tend to mention it on air. No. Uh, classic Doctor Who in particular. As, as much as we love the new stuff, we are big fans of the classic era. Now, Treherne, who was the vicar on the island, because there's two vicars in this particular yes. film. Yeah, the yeah. Vicar on the island. yeah, there's, there's, uh, yeah and that's another one of the stereotypes. The, uh, <laughs> the idiot clergyman, and then you've got the simpleton upper class twit. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's those in there. Yeah. But yes, he, he's, yeah, on the island. Yeah, that's, that's Jack Watling. Jack Watling actually was in Night to Remember thinking about it looking he well not thinking about it, looking this on imdb he was fourth officer on a night to remember so second appearance for jack watling the link to doctor who he's the father of debbie watling 
who was one of Patrick Troughton's companions. I think it was Victoria. I'm, I'm oh, getting. Right. I'm, I'm doing this off the yeah. top of my head, trying to go back in the mists of time. And Jack Watling appeared in. You're familiar with the Pat Troughton episodes, yes. yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the two Yeti stories. There was Web of Fear and the Abominable Snowman. I think were the two. He appeared in. I can't remember what one, but he was Professor Travers or something like that. So he appeared with his daughter on screen in Doctor Who. Right. But he was in quite a fair few movies, like Under Capricorn, The Winslow Boy, Night to Remember, as I say. And he was acting right up until, you know, the early 90s. He appeared in a few Jeeves and Worcesters and Bergeracs and things like that. Yeah, quite a famous face. You're probably more recognisable as an older man, one of these guys that we would know from TV in the 80s. Yeah, and then you subsequently saw him as a younger man when you started watching some of the, the films. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Lewis Gilbert, the director, we mentioned him in in depth with regard to educating Rita. You know, known for the Bond movies, the the Roger Moore Bond movies. This guy could could direct anything and everything, couldn't he? He's it, absolutely. He can show that he not only can he turn his hand to any number of different types of film, and probably with different budgets as well. But from what I'm aware of, of hearing his name mentioned by other people. Um, and stars as well that he, he seems to be somebody who is you know very kindly regarded not just respected as a as somebody who is a good director but the people he worked with actually regard him with with kindness um as a person so he seems yeah. to have been a, a, a you know a decent fellow in in that respect as well which probably helps rather than being some kind of tyrannical director that you sometimes hear about so, you know, fair play to him. He's, he has been attached to quite a lot of films that we um, respect and, and like. So, and has, has been one of the people that has helped shape um, British cinema as we know it. Oh, there'll, there'll be more occasions where we come across Lewis Gilbert. I mean, eventually when we get to the Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker and You Only Live Twice Bond episodes, you know, we'll, we'll see him again. But... We mentioned Shirley Valentine last week. You know, he he was director of that. Reach for the Sky with Kenneth Moore. They, they're going to crop up. We will be reviewing them. The ending of the film, satisfactory or not? I mean, Kenneth Moore makes the... This is the bit we were talking about, spoilers. Kenneth Moore takes the decision that when a ship is seen on the horizon that, OK, we're going to leave this idyllic lifestyle where class has reversed itself and we are happy we are all happy here how did you feel about the ending when he when he makes that decision i can understand why it was done as him making the decision partly yeah. to do with the fact that the setup on the island was that he was the the boss yeah um but also i think for the story it needed to be that the the lower classes were deciding to go back to to their rightful place mm. um, to actually have this as a story that at the time it was written, as I say, turn of the century would be acceptable to people rather than seen as being revolutionary. Yeah. And I think that that was, that it was necessary for that decision to be put in his hands. And although they deferred to him to make the decision, they were happy he had, even though there'd been some discussions about whether they would go back or not. But I think it did feel a little bit rushed um mm. and i know they were just getting the they brought themselves to what they saw as being um a climax of the story on the island and this was a, a something that had to step in at that point to change what the plot development was but it, yeah for some reason it just did feel a little bit rushed mind you the film isn't a long film 
It's not. Fair. No, it's not. I mean, I, I could imagine that the play was probably longer than this version of the, you know, the movie version. Oh yeah, I was talking to somebody earlier on in the week, and they were. They, I said, oh, you know, we're reviewing the Admiral Crichton. And mm. They said, oh, you know, oh, what's that about? And I said, oh, about an hour and twenty minutes. <laughs> and, and, and 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 I think it is. I think if it, if it gets to an hour and a half, it's only just uh, um, ninety-four. But then. Got a few credits, I suppose, to take off with that. Yeah, running time yeah. ninety four. It says here. So, well, I had I had adverts on my version because um, I I watched I watched it on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and there was uh, I think some Eastern European adverts for uh, sweet corn. Excellent. That's just what you need. Yeah. So, which uh, crops up every so often. The these cartoon sweet corn dancing around. Um, <laughs> cropped up uh, for like 20 seconds and then disappeared and the story carried on okay and, and it, it, it was it was it was wasn't jarring as such because it was kind of so odd mm. that you kind of it went straight out of your head that it actually happened you were thinking I've, I've, I've just blinked and that was some kind of delusion i had so i'm gonna put it out of my mind just to keep but, you uh, on your toes to make sure you're yeah, actually watching but yeah. um but yeah so the so the climax of the film comes um, quickly in that sense what i what i think i was less less sure about was that he had thought ahead to mm. the eventuality of coming off the island and had been providing for himself shall we say yeah um, um. For, for if he did end up returning and was that a motivation for why he did made it easier for him to accept going back? I think it was. I think he knew deep down that this was going to happen. If the situation ever arose that a ship was going to be sighted, they would end up going back. Probably for the sake of, of the younger ladies, you know, the, the daughters. I think he would do the honourable thing that, all right, they've all adapted over the previous two years and things are fairly happy and settled. But deep down, their home is London. Their place is London society. And he knew that, I think, all the way along. And I, I quite like the resolution when they return. There's this marvellous sort of like grand sort of party that's thrown for them on their return. And everybody's back to their normal places. That, yeah, that was good where there's an attempt to attempt to unearth the actual true yes. story of Lady what Brocklehurst. happened on the island. Yes. That was interesting that that, that was done as a, a sort of epilogue in there, written, that they were, um, mm. there was an attempt to to again get to the stage where initially they'd been motivated to go to the end by the scandal associated with this um <laughs> true yeah. equality equality aspect of the t- of the tea party with the servants it was the and suffragette was, thing wasn't it the scandal yeah, of the suffragettes and there was a, yeah mm. and there was an attempt to actually dig for more dirt on them to cause them to have to flee again yeah. due to the you know quality of, of the classes. And she didn't get the dirt on it. Because um, Crichton quite cleverly tells the truth but conceals the facts. Absolutely, yeah. Which is, you know, clever writing. Very clever. Um, ab- absolutely. I mean, this film could... I think this film could quite easily be seen as as simpler than it is, as we've said. Yeah. And that that's one of the bits where it shows that there's... A, there's there's a cleverness in it beyond that surface detail. And that that did help sell the ending to me, Yeah, um, I think. Yeah, I just like the fact that the resolution is that he goes off with Diane Cilento or, or Tweeny, isn't it, as she knows? Tweeny, yeah. yeah. And I just like the thought that, you know, in, in two, three years' time when he's a successful businessman 
And all right, he hasn't got that sort of that you know reached the echelons of their class, but he will be accepted by them as a valued member of society because he's you know a trusted you know businessman and he's got his own set up his own life again and, and and things will probably sort of resolve themselves later i don't think that was the end of the story as such i don't think I they've could, said goodbye no, to him completely. i could imagine i could imagine him being a lot harsher with his own servants than uh, his own lord had been with him as a as a as a servant as well mm, though yeah uh, unfortunately with him being more wedded to the class system yep. but um higher expectations um even though he, he wasn't born into into the higher life himself but yeah, I mean, it should have been, you know, the the, na- the natural order that they would have wanted to have seen at the time of it being written yeah. would have been everybody returning back to their station mm. and every pairing up with their their own class. Yeah. Even if it was one of them being new moneyed, mm. um, still that they should be, you know, keeping to themselves. And that would have been satisfactory for the, the audience at the, the time of it being written and the play being done and the original film. And in the 50s, I suppose the class system was being dismantled um, post-war, but there was still this looking back to what they had maybe moved on from. I mean, sort of in summary for me, first time I've seen this film in 20 plus years and enjoyed it possibly this is the best viewing i've had of it i loved it i sat and watched it yesterday afternoon and i just got these feelings of all of, of, of familiarity it's like oh this is a comfortable movie to watch because i think i know these characters but then thinking back well actually i've looked into this film a little bit deeper and i've seen the underlying mess ways and even underlying the message the message is there about the class structure and as you say, for the time it was written, probably quite scandalous. For the time it was filmed, I think it was quite daring. I like the fact that it was filmed on location. Like we said, it wasn't some windswept British beach in the middle of October. That looked like a Caribbean island. And I think you could actually see that there was a lot of money spent on this. This was probably quite a big production for Rank or whoever made the movie. Actually, I think it might have been Paramount. And you can see that they're thinking this is, you know, quite a, a, a tale that we need to tell here. We need to devote some money to this. And, and you can see the money's there on the screen, as you say, with all the inventions and the sets and the props, uh, and, special and effects location. and location. Yeah. You know, I loved it. I loved it. It's four stars out of five. It, it was, it was, you know, was done to try and capture the American audience. As well. And obviously they like to see Quint, mm. um, British classic manners um, that they see. And, um, you know, as you said, they changed the name of it. Which Paradise I, Lagoon. I, I, yeah. I think was to do with them um, not wanting the confusion of it being a, about some um, military um <laughs> the military, admiral military, military figure yeah that that i think was i think that it was that stupid it's along the lines of the, the madness of king george the third having to be changed to the madness of king george because people would be worried that they weren't, weren't wanting to see One the third two. in a series of films yeah exactly um i haven't seen the first two so i'm not watching the first you know i'm surprised they, i'm surprised they got away with six cents to be honest oh um, so if, if you look at the posters and, for and seven and seven seven yeah the other six before it you look at the posters for Paradise Lagoon as it's built in America. It looks like a love story. This is the focus of of the plot. It looks like um, 
Oh, the bit in the sand with From Here to Eternity with Deborah Carr and Burt Lancaster. You know, they're using that scene where oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Kenneth Moore and Sally Ann Howes are kissing by the lake. And it does. It looks like this sweeping Hollywood love story set on a desert island. But it's it, obviously we know it's something completely different. Yeah. Well, it was quite successful, it seems, because, I mean, they end up um, returning to the stage with mm. it, um, with Kenneth Moore. Um, playing it on stage, and it was a, it was a stage musical. Um, Do you know what? Uh, I thought it would make a great musical watching this. I thought, yeah. why hasn't anybody done a musical I mean, version yeah, of it? I I'm, not a, I'm, have. Not a, I'm not really a, a musicals fan, mm. but um, but absolutely, this would be ripe for yeah. for making. And obviously, at the time, somebody thought that, and it was quite. Already quite done. successful doing so, and obviously Kenneth Moore felt able to do so. I returned to the the part, and um, I know traditionally you don't have to always have great um, singing ability if you're going to be um, somebody who's a, a better known star. If you're going to yeah. be performing a role in a musical, um, but um, seemingly it went well. Um, so yeah. that's you know it's, it's got that cachet to it and yep. as you say it's it's a comf- it's a comfortable film i you know i felt the same it's a mm. the quaint sunday afternoon classic film of manners which can sit there and it kind of takes you a bit back to your childhood in a way of, of sitting and watching something like this and um, just comfortable while it's raining outside and yeah. cold and you're you're in the warm watching it i'd say you know because it is on on youtube um i'll buy it with um, sweet corn dancing in, in cartoon form part way through. Um, I'd say that you know if, if you're in the mood for something comfortable that has a has a bit of an unlinding part to it, but mm. it isn't something that's aggressive or yeah. heavy or even even heavy in its its underlying message. No, not um, then, then this is something that's you know it's it's an hour and a half of your time that I can't see you begrudging um, watching. So people out there should. You know, go and take the offer of it being free on YouTube and, and just give it a go and, and enjoy it. Perfect really. British movie about British manners, I think, is a Absolutely. nice way of summing Quint- it up. Quintessential. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's what this podcast is all about, this sort of movie, <laughs> I believe. Well, it's not quite what this podcast is about because there's more than a hint of professionalism about this film. <laughs> Thank so. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a break. We'll be back with what we're watching next time. <laughs> Okay, Stephen, for our next episode, um, I'm going to pull out the big guns in more ways than one here. When we talk about British movies, certain movies spring to mind, and I think this might be one of them. We're going back to the 50s again. We're going back to 1955. It's a movie directed by Michael Anderson. And when I tell you it stars Richard Todd, Michael Redgrave, and it is probably one of the most famous war movies this country has ever produced... I think you're going to guess that we're going to be talking about the Dam Busters. Yeah, well, that's very much sort of smack band centre of, <laughs> of what this podcaster was created for, really. We've got to um, do it. We've, we've, you know, we haven't touched on some of the bigger classic British movies as yet, and I think this one has got to be up there, hasn't it? I would say so. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's archetypal. I mean, when you think of of war films, mm-hmm. um, they don't really get much bigger than. Than Dambusters. I think so. I think so. So, and you know, I 
I can't think of anything that that really is bigger as a war film, and and there was quite a lot of them done. Yeah, um, out there. The only other thing I was thinking of, say something like Reach for the Sky with Kenneth Moore around about the same sort of time, <coughs> or uh, The Cruel Sea, perhaps. You know, those were the three that I tend to put together. Definitely worth a look, I think. Yeah, I think that it's, it's got the cachet to it, and I can understand that for you, for yourself when you first starting to do this podcast you didn't want to leap straight in with no. what could be seen as being the the easy option yep. or the the known option you you wanted to sort of get get a bit of a, a base of other films in there yeah and you've jumped you know quite rightly we've been jumping about with different genres and this is a war film really to to cut them all off and it mm. It's it's about time it was got to because of, you know if you leave it too long it's it's almost like it's been one that's ignored and, yeah. and it definitely is, isn't shouldn't be ignored as a film. I think this so. is only our second war film out of twenty plus episodes. So you know as you say the the genres are well and truly covered throughout the podcast and we could have done an entire podcast just on British war movies. There must be thousands out there that we could dip into. But yeah, I like the fact that we're gonna. You know, we we've gone from a comedy to a drama to adaptations of plays. We said we'll probably never ever do a western on this podcast because there aren't many British westerns, if any. Not, not really. No, no. <laughs> um, uh, once upon a time in the Midlands, <laughs> uh, which actually that is a film, isn't it? Yeah, once upon yes. a time in the Midlands is actually a film. Yeah. Um, um, there's a Kenneth Moore western. Kenneth Moore was in a film called The Sheriff of Fractured Draw. With Jane oh, Mansfield, yes. if I remember yeah. rightly, but not necessarily. That was, him, that was him, Hollywood, and not not a British. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and as we've said, Carry On Cowboy is probably the closest we'll ever ever get. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Dan Buster's next a certain, time. Certain uh, thing in it of its own, I think. Yeah. But yes, as a, a war film that you know eventually needed to be got to, and it's it's time is due. I think so. I think so because we're we're rapidly hitting our second anniversary. By the time we get to recording and putting this episode out, so yes, definitely nice one to nice one to look at. Stephen, thank you very much again, sir, for being here. My pleasure, and I will see you very soon. Okay, Cheers, take mate. care. Bye bye. Shah, positive shah. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you.
the British end up, sir. Ha, ha, ha.